Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. And uh, much to discuss this week. We're going to be doing a review of the season. That will come later on. Um, we're also going to be, or I'm going to be discussing the new Gods of Snooker documentary on the BBC. But we're going to get get straight in with an email from uh, Strafford Walton. Okay, I'm, you'll like this email. Is, 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 that a, is that a person or a place? It's a person, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you'll find that. Greetings from Wellington, New Zealand. That's where he's from. All right. So, I'm enjoying your podcast and just listened to episode 156 after Selby won the World Championship. I discovered your podcast a few few weeks back and have listened to the last half a dozen or so as they came out. But what to do whilst waiting for snooker tournaments to start up in July? Listen to all the historical episodes of the Snooker Scene podcast. I've made my way to episode 14 so far. I mean, some people just waste their lives. Uh, he, he says, uh, just to set the record straight, I thought I'd keep track of which episodes mentioned Fergal O'Brien. And he, <laughs> so he supplied, okay, he supplied a running list, okay? Oh, this is wonderful. And he says, I'm a big fan of Neil Robertson, being a fellow Melbourneian. I've only recently, last year or so, gotten back into snooker since watching Pot Black in the 70s. I have to say, this, happened, this seems to be a bit of a theme that people who, we had the guy who hadn't been to snooker since 1985, People seem to be rediscovering snooker a little bit, which is good, I think. It's well, all down to us. We're, we're bringing uh, back the masses. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big show. Anyway, so he's gone through all 14 episodes, okay? And these are the ones he's going to tell us whether they mentioned Fergal or not, okay? So epi- <laughs> episode one, Fergal mentioned. Episode two, Fergal not mentioned. Episode three, Fergal not mentioned. Episode four, Fergal mentioned. Episode five, Fergal not mentioned. Episode six. Fergal not mentioned. Episode seven, Fergal not mentioned. Episode eight, Fergal not mentioned. Episode nine, Fergal mentioned. That was with Matt Hewitt from Pro Snooker Blog at the time. Now yeah. WPBSA. Episode ten, what we rather grandiosely called the Christmas special in 2015, and he says Neil Robertson is tipped for the World Championship. We've heard that before. Fergal not mentioned. Episode eleven, Mark Williams. Fergal not mentioned. Episode 12, Dominic Dale, brackets, recording, recording in a cafe restaurant. It was actually a hotel, but anyway, mm. Fergal, Fergal not mentioned. Episode 13, Fergal mentioned. Something about CFAX. 
Now, I think that might have been my story about when I had to ring the, the CFAX number they gave oh, you after hours. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, rang, I rang a man in Middlesex, and, and he wasn't happy with the scoreline between Fergal and Brian and Dave Harrell for the Masters. And that's episode 14, Mark Selby, Fergal not mentioned. So just adding that up, one, two, three, four. Four mentions for Fergal in the first 14. Now, not it won't be too long to actually come to my interview with Fergal. So he will, <laughs> he will actually... Well, he, might, he, might, he might want to skip over that, because that, that was the worst sound quality of yeah. any of the 150 or so. The thing is... That's saying something. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, indeed. That's from a that, that that's from a very different era. It's really only the last year or so since we started going weekly with this that Fergal seems to have featured well, hopefully he this number of times. Uh, Strafford will keep us updated, mm-hmm. um, and you know that would be enough for most podcasts. You know, people would say, "Okay, we've got our money's worth, but we're going to plow on." Um, of course, the thing is, instead of listening to one of the podcasts each week, they're about an hour long, so he could watch half of the frame that Fergal played against Dave Gilbert a few years ago. But also. Time. But also, of course, this is where the podcast sort of eats itself because eventually he's going to catch up. Well, he's listening to the current ones anyway. But if, if he keeps updating us as the ones Fergal's mentioned in, we therefore have to mention Fergal. So <laughs> it's kind of it's become a little bit um, postmodern anyway. Let's crack on. Yeah. Uh, the new calendar has been announced. There's still quite a few to be confirmed, which is understandable in the COVID situation. Today, as we record this, a new Turkish Masters has been announced, which is another territory for snooker i had a look into this okay so i reckon and rolf Kalb confirmed it uh turkey is the 23rd country stroke territory to host a full ranking event now you might say prove it so these are the ones that have, that have hosted ranking events okay england wales mm-hmm. scotland northern ireland the republic of ireland china dubai bahrain australia canada thailand india gibraltar austria germany belgium latvia the netherlands and france uh, oh and malta <laughs> romania and hong kong so they are the countries that have hosted world ranking events Turkey is going to be um, the latest, which is which is great news. And I, I understand there are other sort of territories being being explored. Some that are already on that list, and some that are not. Yeah, and it's a four year deal as well. You know, some of the places you mentioned there disappeared as soon as they arrived on the calendar. Romania was one. Uh, Bahrain obviously was another one. Let's not revisit that world of pain. And um, the the one that was a you know. Quite disappointing, actually, was the Netherlands 30 years ago this year staged a ranking event, as you mentioned there. Tony Jones won it and, and never staged it again. And th- th- there was quite a, a build up of support for the game in the Netherlands around that time. I know they staged one or two of those European tour events, but never had another major ranking event after that. But uh, wonderful to see. Uh, I mean, we were talking actually just before we started. I was saying there's not going to be anyone there. But you, you're telling me there's actually a really, really big following for the game now. in Turkey. Oh, yeah. And they're going to have a couple of Turkish players in it as wild cards. It's half a million pounds in prize money, and that's actually going to increase each year of the four-year deal. So wonderful news. Yeah, and let's not be coy. This is down to Eurosport, because they Turkish, mm. Eurosport, Turkish Eurosport, it is a big sport there. Of course, the real list would be uh, the list of countries where tournaments have been announced and never happened. But that's, that's, oh, maybe, that, yeah. that's for another uh, week, maybe. Yeah, that, that, that would fill an entire podcast on its own. Just one small thing that came out when the calendar was announced. The home nations have been slightly tweaked. There's going to be... It's not actually a qualifying round as such because it's the same round. So people are still coming in the last one to eight. Everyone's coming in last one to eight. But the top 16 matches will be played at the venue. There'll be pre-qualifiers for everyone else. Um, I think the reason for this possibly is to sort of end that long log jam you get on the Thursday where you have to mm. play two rounds. You play the last 32, the last 16. A lot of good matches are thrown away. There's a lot of complaints. The same players are just seen. So that will ease that, definitely. Um, I think it's a bit of a shame, personally, because I think one of the selling points of these events is it is the whole tour at one venue. 
in an ideal world, what you do actually, you'd play the day before. The qualifying round would be the day before, so you're still at the venue. You're not somewhere else. Um, it's non-TV. You get rid of the matches that maybe people are less interested in, but it's not always possible to book venues for that amount of time. Sometimes there are tournaments ending the day before anyway. So it is what it is. Um, we'll see what difference that makes to the enjoyment people have for these events, but that's come out as well. But we're going to move on now because we're getting to our review of the season very shortly. But first of all, a new series has started on BBC Two in the UK, Gods of Snooker. This is about snooker in the 1980s, the UK snooker boom. Um, now, you haven't seen it, have you? But uh... No, I've not, I've not had the chance to watch it yet. And uh, Actually, over here, we get to see BBC, but we don't um, have access to the iPlayer. Yeah. So there's only been one episode here so far, which I haven't had a chance to watch yet. But ev- everyone who's talking about it says it's absolutely brilliant. Well, I've watched all three episodes on the BBC iPlayer. You can watch it there in the UK. Uh, I thought it was very well made. It was an engrossing and vivid account of the UK snooker boom in the 1980s. The three episodes focus primarily on firstly Alex Higgins, then Steve Davis, then Jimmy White. Now, obviously, they only had three hours, so it couldn't be an exhaustive history. There's a lot that's, there's a lot that's not in here. And also, it's not aimed necessarily at hardcore snooker fans who listen to this podcast. It's aimed at a general BBC Two audience who want to be entertained as well as informed. And I think it did both. If you look at this period, Colour Television first created national interest in snooker. It remained a largely working class activity. And of course, in Alex Higgins, that constituency of people suddenly had a flag bearer on the national stage. He undoubtedly helped build up the interest in the sport. He kept it in the headlines. His story has been romanticised over the years. I thought this was a more even-handed account of Alex Higgins. It didn't make a joke of his violent behaviour, but it did acknowledge his contribution to snooker. However, the boom, and this is the key point, really, this is episode two. The boom really took off because it was embraced by a different type of audience, an emerging, aspirant, middle-class audience in Britain in the 1980s. It was the age of Thatcherism, where aspiration was a key message. And you see in Steve Davis and Barry Hearn, that philosophy lived out. And Steve Davis, and maybe this hasn't been said enough, I would argue he's not only the key figure of this time in snooker history, possibly he's the key figure in snooker history full stop, because he, more than anybody, brought respectability to the game. And that's, that was the key, respectability. It led to the circuit becoming what it is today because it brought that new audience, women, children, families. It's noticeable when Steve Davis wins the 81 world title, his first world title, immediately thanks his mum and dad. And that sort of normalcy contrasts with all the headlines surrounding Alex Higgins, you know, a completely different sort of world that, that a particular audience didn't like. It made Steve a favourite with mums and nans and the general public. Gary Lineker actually on the show gets it right. He says Steve Davis was a genius without flaws. We often talk about flawed geniuses. Steve Davis didn't have any. We see Barry Hearn uh, in archive footage, Steve's manager. He's shown in the programme talking about trying to take snooker up market, promote a different image and exploit its role at the centre of British culture, which in the 1980s it was. The last episode on Jimmy White deals with some of the excesses of the period. I thought this was a bit sort of having its cake and eating it. it. It luridly details the drug taking, but also has Jimmy talk about how destructive it was. So I suppose you do see both sides of it. Then the series ends as the 90s begin. Stephen Hendry becomes world champion. I thought Hendry was very entertaining on the programme, actually. Um, but this was the only down note for me because there was a sort of sense at the end that, that actually interest in snooker somehow ended at this point, which is preposterous considering this was the start of the, the captivating Hendry White years. Mm. Uh, there's a sports journalist on the programme, Julie Welsh, who makes a ridiculous comment 
that she stopped watching snooker because nothing new was happening. Well, in the 90s, more new things happened than any other decade. Because well, what, what, is, what, is that, what does that even mean anyway? I mean, like, it's well, well, the nonsense. point is. Yeah, it is nonsense. And, you know, the game went open. We had all these new characters. You know, it was a new era, a very exciting era. But anyway, that's what she said. That, that was the only download. But overall, I enjoyed it immensely. It yeah. was some great, great archive footage. Good to hear from people like Ray Reardon, who's lost none of his spark. John Virgo, actually, I thought, spoke particularly well. And I don't see how any snooker fan wouldn't enjoy it. What I do understand, though, is, and Judd Trump, of course, made his comments before the World Championship, I do understand people say, oh, it's just the old stuff again. Why do we have to go back to that? And I was thinking about this. I, I do sympathise with what Trump is saying because when I grew up, all you heard about was the 1960s, how great the 1960s were. You, oh, you should have been there. It was fantastic and all this. And of course, if you weren't alive, you weren't there. You, you can just sort of resent that period because it was basically people saying, look at us. We were there. You weren't. And there's a little bit of that in the snooker world as well. Oh, the 80s were so great. Yeah, but if you're born in 1989, as Judd Trump was, you didn't see any of it. So I do get that. But I think also he and others have to look at, okay, how have we got the circuit and the riches and the prize money we play for now? How have we got that? There's a very clear bridge between the two. His name's Barry Hearn. We see him in the 1980s as the leading manager. We've seen him up until last week, literally, running World Snooker Tour the last decade. And, you know, the last thing he did, I imagine, was sign this turkey deal. So thumbs up from me for the series. Very entertaining, I thought, quite informative. As I say, they don't tell every story of that period. But I think... The, the two sides of it, the, the sort of working class niche sport that breaks out largely due to Colour TV and Alex Higgins and then becomes a respectable mainstay of British culture, thanks largely to Steve Davis. I thought they got that right. And I, as I say, I think snooker fans will enjoy it. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, that Steve brought respectability to the sport. Well, the other thing he brought, as you alluded to there, was Barry. Now, yeah. it, one of the great myths is that snooker exploded on TV under the guidance of Barry Hearn. I mean, that's just completely not true. I mean, he played a big role in bringing a whole other commercial side to it in the 1980s, but that was at a time when the, the snooker boom had already started. What he has definitely done, of course, is revive the game from the terrible state it was in 10 years ago. And maybe none of that would have happened. In fact, it's almost certain none of that would have happened had it not been for Steve Davis becoming his client, you know, just by chance as much as anything else. And you think of what's flowed from that, the big circuit we have now, and not even just snooker. You think of the whole matchroom empire with pool and golf and darts and everything else. In a way, you could say Steve is partly responsible for, for all of that as well. And you mentioned how normal he was, the fact that he thanked his mum and dad. He was still living with them, I think, yeah. pretty, pretty much throughout that golden age he had in the 80s. I think it was even uh, when he was world champion uh, in, in 81. I think at that time he was still sharing a bedroom with his brother. Amazing to, to, to think that he was perhaps the most famous person in Britain at the time, apart from Margaret Thatcher, as the old cliche goes, which I think is, is probably quite true. And then going home and sharing a bedroom with his brother. But uh, like I say, I haven't seen any of the episodes yet, but everything that I've been hearing about it, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in. I mean, there were a couple of references to Davis, you know, signing a contract, the biggest in British sport, you know, not just snooker, British sport. And also, um, I, I was kind of thinking, like, we talk, we've had the, the, the greatest debate on this podcast, and people have it. And Steve's name has sort of slipped out of that, um, you know, quite mm -hmm. considerably. But I was thinking, like, if someone said to me now, OK, we've got room for one statue outside the Crucible, OK, who would you put up there? I would put Steve Davis up there, definitely, because that decade definitely you know, cemented snooker, not only in the public consciousness, but as a as a bona fide professional sport. It wasn't just a sort of niche game played in smoky halls. It became a proper professional sport. And he was the absolute talisman of it. 
And I think that shouldn't be forgotten. The problem is, of course, Steve, and it's a little, you see a little bit of this on the documentary, he's become so sort of self-deprecating about it all. He's got other interests mm. now, you know, and fair enough. Good luck to him. Um, but I don't think anyone should undersell his contribution. I think it's, uh, as I say, there's an argument he's the most influential person in the history of the sport. Maybe that's uh, a discussion for another time. But let's crack well, on. Well, oh. but just before we do, if they do put a statue of Steve outside the Crucible, can you imagine Hendry at the unveiling? And he'd probably have to go because he'd be invited to it. And it would just seem like sour grapes to turn it down, especially as him and Steve are good mates. I think it'd be worth having a whip round for the statue just to see Stephen's face if he well, had to go to the unveiling. Well, Stephen told me he went to because uh, Steve was DJing uh, during one of the UK championships in York. And oh, yeah. he invited the BBC team along and Stephen went just out of curiosity, really. And as he, t- as he walked in, Steve was wearing a Stephen Hendry mask. <laughs> <laughs> was it the spinning image one? The... No, no, it was just you can get them online, just just to, just, to, just his face. Anyway, that's a whole other world. Amazing. That's a whole other world. I just want to, before we go into the review, re- review of the season, I just want to mention Stan Chambers, who passed away recently at the age of 85. He was a big name, a well-known name in Q Sports in snooker in the Northeast. Uh, he guided players like Gary Wilson, Elliot Slesser, and actually David Lilly, who just won the World Seniors mm. Championship. Well done to him. Uh, it was a good four days there at the Crucible. I met Stan about 20 years ago. I went to the English Nationals final. Actually, Judd Trump won the under-15 national English title at the age of 10. And Stan was very much in the thick of it all there. And he was a coach. He was a referee. He organised tournaments, particularly junior tournaments. And very much like Malcolm Thorne, what he gave to snooker was his time. You know, think of all the hours, all the weekends he spent running his coaching clinics, running tournaments, when he could have been doing something else. He did it because he loved snooker. He wanted to contribute to it. And, you know, we need people like that in the grassroots, maybe more than ever. And I know that because I got a message when the Championship League was on, you know, a couple of months ago from one of his friends saying he was in hospital, Stan, but he was watching the snooker on free sports, still, you know, in love with the game. So I just wanted to acknowledge him and his contribution. And I know a lot of the guys in the Northeast, you know, online have already done that. And obviously, you know, condolences to, to Stan's family. Um, we're going to move on then to the review of the season. Now, uh, you know, it's not, not like the Oscars. We haven't got any awards. And also, it's not going to last four hours. Um, and hopefully, there'll be no political speeches. But anyway. Well, thankfully, um, there are no actual awards to hand out. Because if you remember one time, um, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this, but we got the trophies, remember, for the Snooker Writers Awards from Fergal O'Brien's dad, <laughs> who runs a trophy shop. That's right, yeah. Incredible. Right. And um, Fergus, I, I believe his name is. Fergus, yeah. I actually called into the shop last summer just to see if he was still there and he, he was still working away. And it hasn't changed a bit, the, the shop, and, and neither has he. But uh, I used to bring the trophies over every year to the uh, little awards dinner that we used to have, which some winners uh, would come to and some wouldn't. And um, But I, when I arrived uh, one year for it, I took the trophies out and one of them had snapped a bit off. And of course, we were presenting it that night to, I think it was Ding Junhui. So I had to go to the local cost cutter. Oh, get that's right, super yeah. glue. You, yeah. you glued and your hands together. I managed right. to, well, no, hang on now. This is how these stories <laughs> grow. No, I glued two of my fingers together. So, you know, which, which, which obviously is so much more dignified than that. And it's like the, it's like the old joke. I was reading a book, The History of Glue. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I remember Fergus, he got, he, when Fergal, we will get to the review of the season shortly, but. Uh, he, 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 when Fergal uh, played in the Masters one year, Fergus came over, obviously, and, and he went for a sort of afternoon in, in central London, which involved getting the tube, and he got horribly lost on it, basically. He ended up, he was on the Northern Line for about four hours trying to trying to find his way back. But anyway, none of this helps us uh, review yeah. the season. Apparent, apparently in that time, he'd missed a frame of Fergal's match. So. <laughs> oh, cutting. Yeah. Right. 
Um, I may be cutting that out of the podcast. Anyway, now we've got various categories. We're just going to freestyle on it um, because what does it matter, really? And we'll go straight in. We're not like the Oscars. It's always best picture at the end. We're going to go straight in. Player Mm. of the season. Who is your player of the season? Yeah, Mark Selby is my player of the season. Ah. Um, yeah, we had the journalists uh, vote, of course. I mean, the World Snooker Awards were on last week. Obviously, in the current circumstances, there was no ceremony. And to me, it was a case of I actually put my vote in before the final. I said, if Selby wins the final and going for him as player of the season, otherwise it's Trump. And I would happily have given it to either of them because Trump obviously had another fantastic season. I just thought Selby putting behind him the way last season finished with a massive disappointment in Sheffield at the semi-final against O'Sullivan to get a ranking title under his belt right at the start of the season, then win another one against O'Sullivan a few months later, and then obviously to finish the season as world champion. For me, he just edged Trump in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I agree, actually. I was wondering what you were going to say, because there is a very good case to be made for Trump, obviously. Mm. Um, But the problem is, well, not the problem, just the reality is the world championship just is so big that if you win that plus a couple of other tournaments, it's a bit like sort of Monopoly, you know, you've, you've got a couple of hotels on the, on the yellow ones, but if you get Mayfair and Park Lane, you know, you're going to win. And uh, that's not to in any way do down Trump's achievements because those events are not easy to win, particularly actually the best of seven ones. They're tough, tough to keep plowing through those short matches. It's interesting, though, you look at the tournaments he won. Apart from the World Grand Prix, they were very similar. They were all multi-table uh, events where he was always on the main table um, and it's almost like he was sort of inspired by his own status you know he, he was absolutely right to have been on that main table um, but it's almost like that brought the best out of him in, in some way mm. uh, the World Grand Prix with just two tables um, as I say fine achievements I agree that I think Mark Selby um, particularly actually the way he bounced back from that crucible disappointment showed great strength of character and to end it with a fourth world title I agree with you uh, OK, so we've agreed there. P- uh, performance of the season. Yeah, well, uh, there were two things I was thinking of for this. I, I was going to say John Higgins and just his performance throughout the Players' Championship, which was just, you know, I can't even find the words to sum it up. But in the end, I just decided to go for a particular match. And Neil Robertson's performance in the Tour Championship final against Ronnie O'Sullivan. I mean, we always talk about centuries. And I've said this before. I think there's a little bit too much emphasis on those because actually... A 70 break, you know, you're nearly always going to win the frame anyway. Now, he had five centuries in that final, but he had eight breaks over 70. And I mean, that's just fantastic play in a best of 19 match. But ultimately, it was to be the same story for both Higgins after the way he had played in the Players' Championship and Robertson the way he had played in the Tour Championship final, that uh, they weren't able to, to carry it through to the Crucible, which will hurt Robertson a lot more because look, John's already got four world titles. But yeah, that, that to me was the outstanding performance of the season to, uh, to play that well against Ronnie O'Sullivan and that consistently and that relentlessly uh, shades it for me. Interestingly, uh, to mention him again, Judd Trump, he actually said, because people got very excited about Higgins and Robertson's, their performances in the lead up to the Crucible, he actually said people are getting a bit carried away because, uh, you know, it's very hard to repeat that performance, particularly over a long event. And I think some people almost saw it as sour grapes, but he was proved right. They didn't yeah. They didn't perform at the Crucible. Uh, my performance of the season goes to Jordan Brown for winning the Welsh Open. So this is a performance over a tournament. Um, it was a sensational achievement, uh, not least because he was taken to the a decider five times in the event. Obviously, you know, beat Mark Selby on the black. Terrific performance against Stephen Maguire. I think that was the one, actually, that was almost more impressive than the final in some ways. Just the way he came out and played in that match 
suddenly one table. I know there was no crowd, but there was no crowd anywhere until the Crucible. Um, and then to, to, to outlast O'Sullivan in a two-session final, I mean, absolute sort of dream come true stuff. I mean, um, Jordan was on the podcast quite soon after that, and I think he was still sort of coming to terms with it all. Um, I, I just thought it was incredible. And, and you know, to, to come from right out of the pack and, and win a ranking event, what he's also done, of course, is he's inspired other players around that, that area to think, well, if, if he can do it, why can't I? So so Jordan, very much, uh, if there was an award, would would, <laughs> would, would be getting it. Um, let's move on to newcomer of the season. I, I, well, of course, the World Snooker Awards were also announced last week. This is essentially Rookie of the Year, and it was won for them, for Pang Zhengzhou, and, and I concur with that. I'm very impressed with him, actually. I, I commentated on when he beat Steve Maguire in the UK Championship. And he has a certain poise that you don't always see with new players. He seemed to, A, be able to keep his emotions in check, which is so important. But B, he just seemed to have belief, you know, and you, you sort of think, well, where's that come from? But some players just have it. I mean, Hendry had it. I'm not saying he's going to be a Stephen Hendry, obviously, but, you know, some players just seem to have it and he seems to have it. So I'll be, I'll be interested to follow his progress. Yeah, uh, I've gone for him as well. I don't think there's any debate about it, to be honest. Um, we had three rookies get to the last 16 in the European Masters right at the yeah. start of the season, which was remarkable. He was the only one, though, of the three who really built on it, ended up getting to three last 16s over the course of the season. You mentioned that match against Maguire at the UK. He was 5-3 down in that and won the last three frames. And it looked like he might beat Maguire again, actually, didn't he, in the Welsh, because he was 2-0 up there. And then Maguire came back, played well, won the last four frames. But he had some very good wins during the season. Uh, he beat Barry Hawkins. In the European Masters, having actually gone 2-0 down in that one, he turned it around to win 5-2. We've mentioned that he beat Maguire, he beat Ding as well in the second round of the Welsh. So a lot of good results for him. And we talk all the time about the Chinese players. We've seen so many of them. You could name 20, 30, maybe even more over the last 15 years or so who we've seen look like world beaters. Very, very few of those have actually gone on to become top players because they don't find the consistency well, that's pretty consistent, isn't it? Getting to the last 16 of three big ranking events in your rookie season. So, as you say, it's going to be very interesting to see now if he can go on and build on that. There are a lot of challenges for the Chinese players. They travel over to England, where they primarily have to base themselves most of the time. And they might be fine with it at first, but then real life gets in the way a bit. and They discover other things and maybe they get to you know, really like their new life in Britain and get a bit distracted. Or perhaps it goes the other way and they start to get a bit homesick. So those are the sort of challenges that he may have to contend with. And uh, incidentally, he's uh, just one day older than Yan Bing Tao. Wow. Mm. See, all, all the information here. Uh, yep. Matt, uh, by the way, all these categories are open to uh, interpretation. So, um, for example, there's one coming up, which is not even a, a snooker player. But anyway, uh, magic moment of the season. Um, go on. What, 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 do you, what do you say for that? I think it was one rather strangely, I thought, um, in the World Snooker Awards by Neil Robertson winning the UK Championship, which just mm. slightly smacked of, we've got a shoe on this in somewhere. Because mm. it wasn't, um, well, it's, it's how you define moment, I suppose. The moment was the, the very end of the match, I guess. But anyway, you, what's your choice? Yeah, I mean, so it's, some of these are a bit open to interpretation, these titles, and certainly Magic Moment probably falls into that category more than any. But I'm going for the second frame of <laughs> a, <laughs> so you know, this really is a moment, of a first-round match in the Gibraltar Open. Ah, I think I've chosen yeah. the same thing. Yeah, there you go. I mean, and you know, we're both big Stephen Hendry fans. I know, actually, in in the in the in the '90s finals, you were you know more on Jimmy's side. I always wanted Hendry to win, but I know you're a big admirer of him oh, as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. 
And um, just to see that, to, to see Stephen Hendry in only the second frame of his comeback make a century break, something we'd seen, well, 775 times before, if you'd managed to somehow watch all of those frames. And it was just wonderful to see that and j- just be reminded. And those of us who you know, grew up, you know, we were talking earlier about the 80s and, and that era. Well, you know, we grew up perhaps a bit more in the 90s. We don't remember the start of, of the 1980s, but we remember the entire 1990s. And we were coming of age at that time. And just so many of my memories of that era are associated with Stephen Hendry playing like that. It, it was it really was just a moment because people said he played well in the match. I actually didn't think he did. I thought he was quite loose in a number of ways. And, you know, that got him back to one all. But he only scored 12 points for the rest of the match after that. But just for those 12 minutes, I think it was. It was just wonderful to see the old magic again, even if that turns out to be the last time we ever see it. And people might talk about the wisdom or otherwise of him coming back. But whatever about that, that was all just forgotten for those few moments as we were transported back in time. And it's going to be fascinating to see now in the year ahead, isn't it? How many tournaments will he play in? Will he do well in any of them? And what will happen at the end of it? Will he want to continue? Because certainly after he lost in world qualifying, he seemed to have lost a bit of his enthusiasm for it. And also, let's not assume he'll be given the chance because it was Barry who gave him the invitational card. Well, there's a new chairman now. Steve Dawson might see things differently. So all of those questions to be answered over the next 12 months with Stephen Hendry. But I really, really enjoyed watching him make that century in the Gibraltar Open. Just while I'll come, I'll, I'll talk about that as well in a moment. But just while I, you mentioned Steve Dawson, um, anyone who's seen the Woody Allen film Zelig, OK, Steve, Steve, Daw- Steve Dawson is the Zelig of snooker because... Obviously, Barry has been the front man, you know, for at Matchroom for, for the whole time Matchroom's been running. But I, I just came across a few old photographs this week of old world finals. And S- Steve seems to be in, all, in the background of all of them. He's been there all the time um, because he's been working for Matchroom, working for World Snooker Tour. He's not the sort of person who pushes himself to the front, although I suppose you're going to have to do that now. But he has been there. And that's why no one needs to worry, you know, that Barry is stepping back. Steve Dawson knows Matchroom as well as anybody. And knows the business as well as anybody. And obviously today, you know, he's he's been quoted in the press release about the, the Turkish Masters. So, uh, yeah, but it's just funny. You kind of didn't notice him at the time, but he was always in the, there in well, the background. You, you call him the Zelig. I mean, you could be tempted on the same basis to describe him as the Prince Philip of snooker. But that would make Barry the Queen. And I don't think he'd be happy with that. I think that's a whole area we don't want to get into. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stephen Hendry's century. I was very pleased to see it for the reasons you mentioned, but also... I spent the whole of the previous week with him <laughs> working for mm-hmm. ITV and all anyone was talking to him about, because of course it was revealed on ITV for the players championship that he was playing Matt Sell. People kept asking him about it, talking to him about it. And it was clear that there was pressure on him. You know, this is Stephen Andrew. He doesn't want to disgrace himself. There was pressure on him to do something in the match. Didn't win the match, but that frame was a reminder of what a great player he was. As for how his comeback will pan out, I suspect personally at the end of the season that's going to come up, he will say, that's it, that's enough. How many mm. tournaments he plays in, I, I, I don't know. I think the only chance, though, of him having any success is to play as much as he can. It was clear that, you know, he hadn't played enough. He comes into the season late on when everyone else is match fit. Matt Selter played in everything and played great. Um, but we'll see. Obviously, that's up to him. He's got nothing to prove. And uh, I, I'd like to see him again. And that, that, that break was very memorable. Um, in fact, spoil, not spoiler alert, just, just a fact. I was on the, the panel that decided the World Snooker tour awards and i actually got that put on as one of the nominations it wasn't on initially um it didn't win i i'm not suggesting any malfeasance obviously but um anyway uh, <laughs> Mal, malfeasance uh, who's just won his card from uh, from from the cusco anyway go on yeah he didn't pay his entry fee but anyway mm. uh right okay let's uh, 
OK, now, we all agree, I think, that the tournament of the season is always the World Championship because yeah. it's the World Championship. But so with this category is tournament of the season outside of the World Championship. What say you? Yeah, I've gone for the Welsh Open, actually, oh. because I just remember saying at the time I thought it had been the best event of the season so far. And, and I was thinking back today when I was just uh, considering what I was going to say here and, and trying to remember why I thought it was the best tournament of the season. Now, you've talked about the Jordan Brown story, so that's one thing. Um, the quarterfinals day was fantastic, even though we ended up only having three of them uh, because Ali Carter um, got ill and had to pull out. Uh, but the others all went the distance and they all had, you know, excellent stories in them. Brown's win over Selby on the last black, as you mentioned earlier. But there were so many other things that week. Mark Selby almost making the maximum. Hossein Vafai getting that wonderful win against Judd Trump. And there was that whole Players' Championship narrative going on as well. Players like Mark Williams and Sean Murphy trying to get the results they needed to get into that. So I just thought overall uh, that, that, that was a really good week. I've actually gone for the Tour Championship. Now, yeah. I think now this tournament's only been held three times and twice in COVID conditions without an audience. But I think this tournament is fantastic. Now, actually, quite a few of the matches were runaways, so they weren't necessarily great sort of close contests. But we did have a couple, and the most obvious was the the Saturday Saturday match between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Barry Hawkins. Um, that tournament, I think, John Higgins actually said, and Karen Wilson said, you know, it feels like the second biggest ranking event now. I think the reason they say that is. Because it's such an achievement to get in it. If you know, you've got to basically win a tournament or do very, very well all season to get in it. So you arrive at the event feeling great already. You know, you, there's only eight players out of the 128 on the tour who can play in it. And I think that tournament is going to grow and grow. When we get the crowds back, hopefully next year, I think that's going to become a real jewel in the crown. I think that tournament is only going to get more prestigious. And interestingly, that that semi-final uh, with Ronnie and Barry, that's the second time that ITV4 have had an audience over a million, which for that channel is phenomenal. Um, but here's the thing, okay, the two matches that have had the million have both featured the same player, okay? Barry Hawkins. Yeah. Not, not yeah. Ronnie, Barry Hawkins. The World Grand Prix final with Ryan Day, and then that match with Ronnie. So Barry he seems to be the golden boy. But um, yeah, that tournament can only get better. And as you mentioned earlier, the final performance by Neil Robertson, you know, that is just about as good as you can play snooker. Um Mm. fantastic achievement for him of course he'd won the UK Championship as well so I really enjoyed that week I was at uh, Celtic Manor I think everyone was kind of happy not to be at Milton Keynes just because it was a change of scene whether it would be back there I couldn't say but uh, anyway funny, I, funny you say that I was at Milton Keynes that week doing the pool <laughs> Championship League yeah that's true mm. okay let's move on uh, to okay match of the season that's not a final because uh, again people will think of, of finals primarily I've gone for a very early match in the season, actually, that I, I was fortunate to commentate on at the European Masters between Aaron Hill and Ronnie O'Sullivan. Mm. Now, now this was one of those matches where even people were saying beforehand, why is this on TV? You know, O'Sullivan's going to just sort of run through him. But he didn't, of course. Young Aaron Hill, new on the tour, from, from your, literally your neck of the woods. I think he lives yeah. about, about half a mile away or something. Right. Um, a little bit more, but yeah. OK, well, we're, yeah. But it was a classic case that actually, if you you know, believe in yourself and play your best stuff, you can beat anybody. And he did. Didn't necessarily back it up as much as during the rest of the season as he might have hoped, but it's only his first season on tour. I just thought he was very impressive. I, I, I seem to remember there was a pink late on, virtually match ball, that he had every right to miss under pressure that he didn't miss. And to do that on TV against the man who'd won the World Championship the previous month, it was just very, very memorable. And I really, it, one of those matches where, because it's not, you know, obviously we love matches between two top players, 
but there was a very different dynamic here. We've got an all-time great, probably the greatest of all time, against a complete newcomer who has come in, given it a go, and has got the result. And I just thought it was just a very, very good advert for snooker. Yeah, and it got enormous attention, I can tell you. I mean, the sort of attention you would never get anywhere near in the UK for something similar happening. It was a massive story over here. He was on all kinds of different programmes, not just sports programmes. He was being interviewed in newspapers. I went to his house to do a piece with him for Snooker Scene. So it really was a massive story. And I think part of that is we're kind of struggling for new faces coming through in the major sports. I mean, our national football team has just been embarrassed at home to Luxembourg in a World Cup qualifier. Other sports that, you know, we, we, we tend to do well and we've not had names coming through. And there hasn't really been anyone coming through to become a, a leading player from the Republic of Ireland for quite some time now. So there was a lot of hope that he might do that. Snooker is hugely popular here at the moment. It's having a, a real revival here. And uh, that result was certainly a big part of it. As you say, he hasn't built it yet. So we hope he does in, in the uh, in the season ahead. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so this is match of the season we're talking yeah. about. Um, so non finals non final yeah I did consider the English Open semi final actually between Robertson and mm-hmm. Selby so that was a wonderful match in the end though you know it's all about the World Championship for me and I just thought that semi final between Murphy and Wilson was absolutely fantastic and we don't know need to go into it again because we talked about it obviously uh, you know during the championship but it was just like a lot of semi finals we've seen where you see one player who's clearly on top but just can't quite extend his lead into the realms of the unassailable. And ends up being overtaken. And that's, again, we talked, didn't we, about that debate as to whether the semi-finals are too long. Well, the number of times we've seen stories like that happen, I think, goes against that argument. Because the fact that you have the four sessions allows stories like that to happen. And, and the way Murphy just hung on and hung on, so many key shots along the way that just kept him in it. And that meant that when he started playing well at the end, it wasn't a case of it being too late for him. He had managed to stay just about sufficiently in touch that when he did really find his game... He was able to turn that into a win. And for me, that uh, that was the match of the season. OK, we've got a few more categories to go. Shot of the season. Now, I always think with these things, context is important. You know, you can see an unbelievable shot, but if someone's 8-0 up, I mean, that actually, that, Judd Trump's green uh, at the German Masters you oh, know, yeah. went, went viral. It was an extraordinary exhibition shot, extraordinary shot. But the frame had long since been won, obviously. It wouldn't play that if, you know, if it was level points. Um so there's an argument that that was the shot of the season, but I have looked more at shots that, that kind of are more meaningful in terms of the context. The, the, the black that Murphy potted in that semi-final you've just mentioned, I think was probably the shot of the tournament in some ways. Um, but anyway, what, what we've got a whole season to choose from, so where, where would you go? Shot of the season, for me, um, you mentioned it there, Aaron Hill and that pink. Ah. Um, ah. Yeah, it, it was amazing, actually. You know, it, it's such a difficult shot, that, just playing... When you know you've got a lot of distance between the cue ball and the object ball, and then a lot more distance between the object ball and the pocket, and playing them across the table like that into a middle pocket, it's one of those shots that really tests your nerve. And I thought what really added to it was the fact that he got up from the shot a couple of times, and he might as well have actually turned and said to Ronnie, sorry, I'm just composing myself here, because it was written all over his face. And it was such a massive moment for him. And as you said, he had every right to miss that ball. Mm. Nobody would have criticised him for it. Nobody would have said, oh, he's bottled it or anything like that. And I just thought it was a wonderful shot. And as you say, it was it, it was the, the kind of the bridging shot, really. He still had some work to do. He'd done the setup work to put himself in a position to make that a match-winning chance. And then he had to go on and finish the job. But that was the shot that it all hung on. 
And uh, th- that for me was, was the moment that stands out. I'm going to mention um, one other shot as well, though. I think it was in the Masters. I don't know if you remember it. Sean Murphy, who just, you know, you could put together 10 shots from him over the course of the oh, season. Oh, yeah. My yeah. content for this. That ridiculous black that he potted. Yeah. The cue ball just Williams. off. Yeah. Cue ball just off the ball cushion. So the black is near a side cushion, about three feet from the pocket. And the thing that people don't know if they've never stood right next to a championship table, when you stand at one end of it, you can barely even see the pocket at the other end. So that would be a great shot to pull out on a club table to do it in a high pressure match in a triple crown event, Dave. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought was outstanding as well. But just topped for me by that wonderful pink that Aaron Hill potted. Well, for me, although I I mentioned Murphy's black in the World Championship, I've actually gone for a different shot in that event, mainly because I still can't quite believe it, the shot that was played. Ronnie O'Sullivan, it was, against Anthony McGill. Yeah. And there was a shot where the cue ball has run into the jaws of the yellow pocket, stayed on the lip, and he gets down and he pots a red into the middle that is like a one in 50 shot. Now, bearing in mind, this is not frame one. I think... I think he was 10-9 down. He was back from 10-6. So the comeback was, I mean, just an incredible pot. I mean, how, how did he pot it? I still don't really understand that. If, you, if you'd got that on the PlayStation, you'd be delighted. He got it at the Crucible, you know, in a, in a very important moment in that match. Um, strangely, I'm not having a go at people here, but Will Snooker, last week, they put together their 20 best shots of the tournament. He wasn't in it. So, that you know, pretty pretty hard crowd to please there. Uh, but Roy I... plays those shots in a way that makes them look routine. Because you think of so many of the ridiculous shots he's pulled out over the years. He doesn't seem to spend that long thinking about them. He yeah. sees the shot, he gets down, he plays it. It's like in the Masters final against one of the Masters finals he played against Selby. He played this absurd shot where he sent the cue ball about nine feet into the jaws of the yellow pocket and bounced it back out to come across the ball cushion and hit another ball. A ridiculous shot that nobody else would even have thought of. But once he saw it, he just got down and played it straight away. And the only other player who I can see in the game who actually does that is Trump, just to have that incredible instinct to see these amazing shots that nobody else would even have spotted and get down and just play them and, and fully expect to get them. And, and most of the time they do. Well, let's drag the mood down, shall we? Disappointment mm. of the season. Now, this, again, is open to interpretation. Yeah. But the reason, in a way, I put it in, I do think there is a, a bit of an issue with scheduling. And <laughs> obviously, we're, we've been in a pandemic, so that you have to make allowances. But it seems to me that some tournaments are not, are not treated properly. And I go back to the Tour Championship. This in particular was, I thought, dis- disgraceful, actually, what happened. So the Tour Championship is an eight-man event. The day before they were playing the final day of the Pro Series, which seemed to go on for about 10 years, um, it just went on and on and on. And there were three players who were going to be in the Tour Championship still playing in that. The, the actual field of the Tour Championship could have been affected by that day. We didn't know who was going to play who until the night before the tournament. Now, that Tour Championship, I've heard it compared, I think, understandably, to the ATP uh, Tour Finals in tennis or, or the, the, the women's equivalent of WTA Finals. You know, a big, uh, not end of season in our case, but a big tournament for the elite. That tournament deserves a media day, at least, in normal times. You know, that's, it's only eight players, so they're quite easy to, to give everyone, you know, uh, a bit of foregrounding, a bit of media coverage. Build it up. Build it up into a big event. Instead, nobody knew the night before. Now, you've got ITV for the host broadcasters. They can't promote the matches. They were told that Ronnie O'Sullivan would play on day one. In the afternoon on the Sunday before, the day before, there were still three potential opponents that he had. 
John Higgins was coming down, not knowing whether he played that day or later in the week. The whole thing was a farce. And as I say, ITV, you know, th- those sort of VT packages you see, the openers and everything, they, that takes a long time to cut together. Mm. You know, the, go- the guys who do it are brilliant, but it takes time to do it well. And they couldn't start work on that until, you know, late the night before. You In the TV guides, you didn't know who was playing. The, this is absolutely true. The day before the Tour Championship, the, several bookmakers were pricing up the matches, thinking they were best of 17 as opposed to best of 19, because there was no information from World Snooker Tour. They didn't promote that tournament properly. When it comes back and we have crowds, they have to change. There has to be a proper gap. I think there's actually, in, in the latest calendar, one day between Gibraltar. But I don't mean that. Have the cut-off the previous event before that. If you look at the Masters, okay, they make the Masters draw on the day of the UK Championship final. Now, this season, there were two ranking events after that, before the Masters, that just didn't count towards it because the BBC got to make their draw. Other broadcasters should be treated the same way. It's nothing to do with actually the pandemic. It's just to do with not actually thinking things through and promoting these tournaments as well as they could be. So that's my little complaint. I thought that was not good enough. And I think that has to change next year. Okay. Well, one thing that will change, uh, I think, in all probability next year is my disappointment of the season. Uh, The fact that it took us so long to get the crowds back. Now, you know, it's, it's not a case of that being the fault of snooker by any means but i think when the season started we knew this was going to be the case for the first couple of events but i don't think anyone really saw it taking as long as it did i don't think we expected that it was going to be the world championship before we saw the crowds in when we did of course it was wonderful and it brought a lot of attention actually to it as well that it was the first uk sporting event for so long to have a full house there and just as the season went on you know you missed them more and more and the night it really came home to me was the masters final And I was thinking back to two years ago and the final between Trump and O'Sullivan, which, you know, for Trump, it was a big stepping stone towards winning the world championship a few months after that. And I remember the the night uh, in Alexandra Palace, there were a few press seats uh, sort of about, we'll say, 15, 20 feet away from the black spot. And I was sitting there and looking at the players coming down the steps from the other side of the arena into Alexandra Palace, that massive crowd, huge cheers, obviously, because they're two such superstar names. And it was just a fantastic snapshot of where Snooker was at in terms of you know, the public mood and the public consciousness at the time. And I was thinking back on that two years later as I was watching Jan Bingtown and John Higgins come into the arena and thinking just how different this is and just what a shame it is that, that this is the way it's going uh, at the moment. So, look, like I say, it wasn't Snooker's fault. Um, it wasn't something anyone could have done anything about. But it did have such an impact on the season. And... Um, Let's hope that we're coming towards the end of that now. Well, let's let's move seamlessly to final of the season then, because my choice actually is the Masters final. I know the UK final went to the last pink, but I actually thought that the Trump Robertson English Open final was a better match, mm. a better quality match. It just, I mean, let's be honest, it finished at one in the morning. The UK final, it was gripping, but it, it was relatively low in quality for those players. But the Masters final, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously we missed the crowds particularly at an event like the Masters, where they're so associated with it in London. But the actual match, I thought, was absolutely fascinating. Um, John Higgins, you know, he hadn't been in sort of a really big final for a while um, and was always going to be, to me, the favourite just because of his experience. But what you saw, I think, in that was how much it meant to him. And he made a couple of really, you know, unusual errors for him, particularly in safety. Whereas Yan Bingtao was absolutely ice cool. I thought he was so impressive. And... What a great story it was, you know, um, this young lad, you know, new on the scene, really, um, 
beating one of the old masters. Now, of course, Higgins made up for it by winning the Players' Championship very soon after that. But I thought it was a gripping match. There was a lot of twists and turns. It wasn't all sort of big breaks. There were mistakes, particularly from Higgins, as I say, that, that contributed to it. And I thought, despite the sort of reduced circumstances, in a way, playing without a crowd, it still held up as a great final. Yeah, and in terms of uh, finals for me, again, you've mentioned it already, the English Open mm. final is the one I've gone for, uh, for the final of the season. And we were talking there about the, the Gods of Snooker programme, uh, is it, or is it called Snooker Gods? No, it's Gods of Snooker, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and the 1980s era and that. Well, I mean, look at the modern gods of the game that we have, and it's wonderful that we've seen again this season so many of them play each other in big finals. And... Trump and Robertson, you mentioned the UK final there. It's funny, when we're looking back 30 years now on the gods of this era, people will probably remember that UK final as an absolute classic match, all because of the way it finished on the colours and you know, Trump so nearly winning it. And it almost ended up being the first UK final ever go to the last black. As you say, overall, it wasn't actually a memorable match at all. The English Open final really was between the same two players. Trump 7-4 down, turns it round then to lead 8-7. Uh, winning four frames in a row, one of them on the black. And then, of course, the, the way it finished, Robertson comes back with a century to set up a decider, but Trump gets in first in that decider, makes a ton himself. Just a wonderful quality match. And uh, those two are building up quite a back catalogue now of great matches between them. And that, that was uh, one to add to it. Absolutely. And, and on the Gods of Snooker and UK finals, they, they deal with the 83 UK final between Alex Higgins mm. and Steve Davis, which was a classic match. But they actually show the start of the BBC broadcast, they show the announcer uh, leading into the last broadcast. It wasn't live. The last the last broadcast of that final, i.e. the climactic frames, was t- started at 20 to 11 at night. Okay? Mm-hmm. The good old days here, by the way. I mean, that's one thing mm-hmm. that has changed. You know, people, there's all sorts of complaints about broadcasting. Listen, you can watch it live, and that's really uh, important. So our last category, um, I think, is achievement of the season. Over to you. Over to you. Yeah. Again, you've preempted me on this. Um, so Jordan Brown for me. Oh. I mean, th- th- he was definitely going to be in there um, somewhere along the way. In fact, I mean, you-, you could look at maybe four or five categories that you could uh, ha- you could give this to. But you've already outlined some of it. I mean, he had all the deciders. He was three one down against Erzenbacher <laughs> as early as the third round. Turned it round to win that. Then deciders against King, against Selby on the black, the semi-final against Maguire, but just that finish against O'Sullivan. You know, he got off to a good start. He was 5-3 up going into the last session. And it looked to be an air of inevitability about things, the way that evening session started. Not just because O'Sullivan turned it round and took the lead, but because Brown did at last seem to be struggling. It was like he had finally realised the enormity of what he might be about to achieve. So then to find his game once again, to get back on track in that final and then go on to win it. I mean, he led 8-7. O'Sullivan threw a century at him. But when he got his chance in the last frame, he won it in one go. And just ball by ball, you could feel the tension mounting. You could see it in, in Brown's face that he knew what a big deal this was for him. And as you say, just an unbelievable uh, thing for someone of that ranking to come through. He, he was someone who for a long time looked to have fallen into that category of too good for the amateur game, maybe not quite good enough for the professional game. But he had really come on a huge amount, actually, in the year or so leading up to that Welsh Open win. It wasn't entirely out of the blue in that sense, even though I don't think anyone would have been tipping him at the start of the week. The question now is, does he become Dave Harold or does he become Bob Chaperon? 
We're talking about, you know, what a choice. So, yes. <laughs> we're talking about real surprise winners of ranking events there. Dave Harold never actually won another one after that. He was very ranking to Jordan Brown. But what he did do was he went on to become a very good player for a number of years after that. I think he got as high as number 11 at one stage. He was certainly in the top 16 for quite some time. Bob Chaperon was actually much higher ranked, but was still a big surprise. Nobody was expecting to win that British Open. And yeah, he had a bit of success actually a few weeks later with the Canada team in, in the World Cup down in Bournemouth. But on an individual basis, he never built on that one ranking title. Jordan Brown probably doesn't expect to go on and become a five, six, seven time ranking event winner. But I'm sure he'd at least like to have a good, solid career for the next 10 years or so. He's well into his 30s now. But whatever happens, I mean, what a thing to be able to say for the rest of your life, to say, I took on Ronnie O'Sullivan, who many people regard as the greatest player of all time, on a big final, live television. David Hendon was commentating, and it went to a deciding frame, and I won it. What a story that will be to tell. And the fact also that it it was one of the oldest... um, ranking events it's the third oldest ranking event and he won it and you expect it will be around for a very long time and even long after he's off the tour if the welsh open is still around he can sit down and watch it every year on the tv and say i won that once yeah i, I should say i was commenting on the first session but anyway that's, that's a small oh, did you not did you not do the final no i had to go because i had to travel to the next event which was i think oh, was the right. players, players championship but anyway okay. um I did I did point this out to Jordan when he was on the podcast. He's actually only the season just gone. He's actually only his fourth season as a professional because because he was off tour for a long time. So even though he's in his thirties, his actual professional experience is not that much. So it was mm. yeah, it was a great achievement. But I'm going to give achievement of the season jointly to Will Snooker Tour and Matchroom for keeping the whole circuit oh, running. Oh, who's playing the political game here? Not at all. I hand, keep, I hand, keeping in with the establishment. Listen, I've just handed out <laughs> criticism, which was warranted, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but this praise is also warranted. A lot of the guys, and people listening to this podcast mainly won't know their names, but these people who have spent a long time away from home, you know, players complain about going to Milton Keynes, but if you get beat, you can go home. Uh, these guys can't. There were people who were literally away for months on end. Um, Mark Williams, not the player, he works on security. Mm. He seemed to be there the whole time and cheerful the whole time. There were a lot of new challenges. They had to work out how this thing was going to run. You know, they didn't. Nobody knew. We were the first sport back initially um, on on June the first last year, and they had to work it all out. And they did. And I've seen a lot of it firsthand. And I pay credit to them. There's a lot of time spent on things that you know, you, like literally just sticking down the arrows on the one way system and all that stuff. Just mundane things that had to be done. And they did it all. And, of course, they got their reward in the end. They got their reward at the Crucible when the crowds came back. That created still further work to make to make that work. But they did. It passed off without incident. It was a great triumph. It was packed for the final. And I was pleased for them. Donna, who's the head of the event management, you know, she played an absolute blinder. And also Emily and all the people from Matchroom as well. Both organisations, I thought, did a brilliant job. And all these matches that we've talked about, behind closed doors, at least we got to see the snooker. A lot of people said throughout the year to me, and I felt it myself, at least we're getting to watch this. You know, we're stuck indoors, particularly in the winter months, can't go anywhere, weather's no good. At least we get to watch snooker. I think it was a period from sort of November to December where there was like five or six weeks in a row every day there was snooker on. So that is down to that is down to them. And I, you know, I don't flinch from criticising when I have to, but also they deserve praise. All of them did a great job. And off the back of that, can we add an 11th category, absurdity of the season? Well, that's a whole, that's a whole podcast. <laughs> we'd probably and, and let, win it. 
and, 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 yeah, and, 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 and let's give it overwhelmingly to people who complained about it all and complained mm. about Milton Keynes. Because, as I said, when we were discussing this before, well, you know, what, what's the alternative? I mean, what would you rather do? Not have the tournaments? Well, if that's how you feel, don't play in them. And the thing is, had it been somewhere else, as you pointed out, I mean, this, we've said this a number of times, for it to have worked, it had to be a place where the venue and the hotel were effectively the same building. That's that's why Milton Keynes was used for so many of the events. So what would have been the difference if it had been in Coventry or Bolton or anywhere like that, which would all be fine venues. And of course, Bolton is going to have the, the champion of champions. I think people complaining about it just really need to see the bigger picture and the, the, the fact that all these events have gone ahead, the same prize money really as well. I mean, mm. you know, that hasn't been diminished at all. You know, in these very challenging times, um, I, I just think it, it's just bang out of order if anyone was finding any sort of fault with it. And, well, let's, uh, be clear, let's be clear, the easy thing to do would have been not to have the tournaments. Just say, look, yeah. we can't we can't run the circuit. Sorry, that's it. Pack up and go home. But that's never been Barry's, Barry Hearn's ethos. And, you know, he's got a good team there. You know, the guys, they work hard in all the various areas. Referees included, obviously, you know, the media team that we know well, tournament office team, all the table fitters, all everybody, the broadcasters, everyone who works at these tournaments, they all did their bit. And I think, you know, that was the great reward that we that we saw at the Crucible. Let's just end with one email from Michael Hager, who is, is going through the season himself. So he says, I enjoy listening to your podcast and could no longer delay sending my first email to the show. I was born in August 1976, and I believe that you and Michael are both of a similar age. Mm. So so when you take a trip down memory lane, it resonates very strongly with my own memories, particularly when you discuss the Mercantile Credit Classic and the World Match Play. There we go. And uh, Fergal O'Brien. You, yes, you asked for some listeners to send in their thoughts on the season, so here are mine. What struck me is how the vast majority of tournaments have been won once again by the same established players, namely Neil Robertson, Judd Trump, Mark Selby, Mark Allen and John Higgins. There was very little to get excited about in terms of emerging young talent, the only exception being Yambing Tao's victory in the Masters. Admittedly, Jordan Brown won the Welsh Open, but he's in his 30s now, so you wouldn't really consider him to be a young emerging prospect. Another observation from the season is how we still aren't seeing anything like the Chinese domination of the sport that was predicted around 2004. A final point from the season that really stands out is that this is the first season of Ronnie O'Sullivan's career in which he hasn't won a professional title. Mm. Perhaps he enjoys the crowds more than he lets on. Next season will tell us more, whether this is a one-off or the beginning of a decline. My personal highlight of the season was the Northern Ireland Open final, a high-quality match between Snooker's two most exciting players, which finished with exactly the same scoreline between the same players for a third season in a row. Of course, that was Judd Trump beating Ronnie O'Sullivan 9-7. That's my final point, really. Okay, so I think there's definitely now a big three in the game, Trump, Selby and Robertson. I'm still minded to put Ronnie O'Sullivan in as a big four, though. I don't, you know, he was in five finals. That's not nothing. Um, and he won the World Championship last year. So for me, it's more of a big four. What, what do you, how do you see that? I think with these things, as soon as you decide there's a big three, it changes. You know, <laughs> one, one well, of them just did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of them loses form or somebody else joins in along with it. I see it more as you've got maybe seven or eight players. And we saw this with Sean Murphy the other week, didn't we? Who, when they get their game together, they're capable of doing just about anything. And the only difference really between them is the consistency with which they get their game together. Judd Trump, over the last few seasons, has done it more than anybody else. Someone like Sean Murphy or Mark Allen has not done it with the same regularity. They do it maybe in spurts or they have the occasional good tournament here and there. So that, to me, is where it's at. I don't think you can have... It's not like, say, you know, in the early 90s, Henry Parrott, White and Davis, for a while, they were clearly the big four. And maybe about 10 years later, Henry's still in there with the class of 92. 
as the big four. I don't think you can actually limit it to that now. And part of the reason for that is there are so many tournaments now. Everyone's got their time to shine. And they're all those guys so good that at some point of the season with that many events, they will all find their time to shine. And that, that to me is how it stands at the moment. Judd Trump is still the best player in the world. Mark Selby, to me, was the player of the season. His big quest now will be to overtake Trump and get back to being number one, which to me would almost be more of an achievement than getting to number one uh, the first time round. But as I've said, you've got so many others in there of Sullivan, Higgins, Williams. I think they're still going to be around for, you know, potentially the best part of another decade. You've got Murphy having revived his fortunes. Allen needs to turn it around again, but he's still very capable of doing it. And of course, you know, that's without even mentioning the likes of Robertson and the wonderful snooker he's capable of in his day. But again, he doesn't produce it as often as the likes of Trump and to some extent Selby have done. OK, well, the new season is due to start in July with the Championship mm-hmm. League, but, but we don't plan to go anywhere. And next week, I thought we'd have an email special because we've had a lot of emails building up, haven't, haven't had chance through the Crucible and everything to go through them. But there's some interesting points being raised on various issues. So next week, I plan to go through what uh, Barry Took might have called the post bag. And there's, there's a reference for, for our younger listeners. Um, can, can you believe, can you believe we have finished the season with about the least contemporary reference you could pop? You know, basically a programme from 30 years ago about old people writing in to complain that their licence fee wasn't being spent properly. What an appropriate way that is to finish the season. We started our last podcast of the season talking about Fergal and we mentioned the mercantile along the way. So I think we've uh, we've summed up our own season rather neatly over the last hour. Barry Took, yeah, who I, I think I'm right in saying, I might have this wrong, but I think, you know, and again, this is a contemporary reference. You carry on Cleo, the famous line, infamy, infamy, they've all got infamy. Yeah. I have a feeling he wrote that line. I'm not sure. That may may not be true. Um, and it's also completely irrelevant to the issue at hand, which is, uh, oh, oh, by the way, <laughs> we have for a, a couple of months now been part of the Sports Social Network. And I, I believe one of the uh, things I agreed to do is actually mention them at some point, which I haven't done yet. Oh. So, <laughs> so uh, it's a, a lot of podcasts on there. If you're a sports fan, uh, you're guaranteed to find one you'll enjoy. I mean, people will say you already listened to one, but there's lots of different sports covered. So well worth checking out the Sports Social Network and all their lovely podcasts there. In the meantime, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. As I say, next week, we will be going through emails. So if yours hasn't been read out, let's know. Uh, we're not ignoring you. They're all there and we will get stuck into them next week. But that is it. That's our review of the season. Uh, But as I say, we're not going anywhere. We will be back next week. So for now, from us all, from us all, from both of us, and indeed, and indeed Barry Took, it's goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.